I should note while you're turning there that the reason that's uh, backward in the bulletin is because I had a momentary uh, delay in judgment in my brain when I sent in the themes and points and the final title and everything at the end of the week. I inverted the services. So the the uh, songs ended up being exactly where they were supposed to be. I just put the texts in the wrong place. Apologies for that. Um, however, we are going to look at 1 Peter, particularly verses 13 through 19. Um, I'd like to read starting at verse 10 so that we can recall the context. But uh, remember how the Apostle has been reminding us of our identity. Who it is we are in Christ and how we are to uh, display that in the, the beautiful, the unmatched hope that God has given us. And so in verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Amen. Beloved congregation chosen by God in Christ, we live in a society that deeply values conformity. They expect those around them to fit in, to go with the flow, to not make waves. For all of our talk about individuality, ultimately, culture prefers conformity. And if you don't fit in, you'll pay the price. I mean, we see it among school children, don't we? A kid who lacks athletic ability, well, they openly argue about who's going to get stuck with that kid on their team. And they ridicule him. How, how can you be so clumsy? Or if everyone does poorly on a test, but you, having studied, do well, oh, well, then your skill becomes a curse. What a nerd. What a freak. You're just, you're just trying to kiss up to the teacher. Kids are cruel to those who don't fit in. They mock them mercilessly. And adults really are no better. If everyone at work is complaining about the boss, but you show kindness to the guy and speak with respect toward him, well, you're just angling for a promotion. You'll get mocked for daring to show honor to one who deserves honor. And if you're convinced that God doesn't want you to work on the Sabbath, well, you're just making it hard for everybody else. You're just not pulling your own weight. 
And so they will slander you for trying to do what God commands. If you won't party with them or curse like they do or tell jokes that glorify sin, well, you must think that you're better than us. And they'll scorn you for being different. This world deeply values conformity, fitting in. And if you don't fit in or you won't fit in, the world will reject you. But the Apostle Peter wants us to know that's okay. That's okay because we have been received by the one who is infinitely better, infinitely greater than the world. And he approves. If we're following him and it's because we're following him that we don't fit in, he approves of our not fitting in. In fact, he urges it. He absolutely calls us to not fit in with a world that glorifies sin, that glorifies rebellion, that delights in doing what God hates. And that's really what this text is all about. About how God's people are called to be different from an unbelieving world. We're called to be different. We're called to be unique. We're called to not fit in with an unbelieving world. And that difference, that not fitting in, begins with the expectation of promised grace. Notice how our text starts, therefore. Kids, whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible reading, stop. What he's about to tell you rests on what he just told you. Oftentimes when we see therefore, it's then followed by a command. In the Bible, the indicative, what God has done, forms the basis for the imperative, for what God commands. So if you're to understand the command, if you're to understand the instruction, you need to be clear about what he's told us about himself, what he's told us about his works. He says, therefore, he's saying, I want you to respond to the living hope that you've been given, to the inheritance that's been preserved for you, to the preservation that has been promised of you. He wants you to act on the basis of the love that you now have for Christ, the joy which you share in God's grace, the immense gift that's been entrusted to you. All of that demands a response from God's people. Now to see what that response is, it's good that we understand the structure of verse 13. There's, you don't always see this in, in every translation. Our pew Bible translates this well. There's one verb, set your hope. And then there's... Two participles, which are verbal, but they're not the main verb. And in this case, grammatically, they help us to understand how we bring about, how we accomplish what's commanded in the main verb. So we need to focus on that main verb. Set your hope fully on the grace. Grace, that favor that God has given us, that favor that we could never earn or deserve. That's the foundation of our hope. Peter wants us to focus our hearts upon the grace that God has promised. Set your hope fully. Remember what we saw last week. Biblical hope isn't like what the world speaks of when it talks about hope. When when unbelievers talk about hope, they're talking about a, a vague desire, right? Oh, I hope it won't rain tomorrow. Oh, I hope I'll be able to get through this hard time. Oh, I hope I'll get a promotion. They don't really have a basis for expecting it to happen They just desire it. 
but a biblical hope rests on the foundation of Christ. It's speaking of something that's certain, something that's sure. We can depend on that which God calls us to hope in. And that's why Peter urges God's people to set their hope fully upon that grace. We must never be half-hearted in our trust in Christ. We must embrace the grace that God offers wholeheartedly and without reservation. And notice, this grace in which we hope is that which will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he promised that he would return just as he had gone. He would return physically, visibly, in a way that the world would see and recognize. And when he returns, the fullness of what he accomplished would be revealed. Already, our salvation, our perfection, the complete restoration of the world from sin and all of its effects, all of that has been accomplished. It's been earned, but it's not yet been revealed, right? And that's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to the time when we no longer even wrestle with temptation. We're looking forward to the time when our every deed is absolutely and perfectly perfect. When we're able to reflect God's image without any defect. Won't that be amazing? When there is no division, there is no disputing. When all who live in the world are united in mind and heart in their desire to know and to serve the Lord. When the creation itself is scrubbed clean of every stain of rebellion and sin. Jesus earned it all, but we don't yet see it. And yet we long for it, don't we? We long for that time where there will be no tears, there will be no rebellion, there will be no sickness or pain or suffering. Amazing to even think of. We long for it, but we know it's coming because Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus earned it all. And Peter says, set your hope there. What happens if we don't? See, if we don't do that, then we get beaten down by the world, right? We get discouraged by our lack of progress. We get discouraged by the fact that we're standing alone. We're tempted to go along with the ways of the world. We're tempted to go along with the inclinations that rise up naturally within us. Because we're focused on here, we're focused on now, we're focused on this. But if we set our hope fully on that which is to be revealed at Christ's return, well then the the difficulty of being alone among unbelievers, the difficulty of wrestling through those temptations and sins, the difficulty, the struggle, the the striving of this world, well it's not so bad because we're looking at what is sure to come. We're looking at what has already been won for us. And that allows us to stand firm. So set your hope fully on, on the grace that is to be revealed to you, to brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do that? It's not just a matter of will. He gives us tools to accomplish this. He says, first of all, preparing your minds. The way that's written in the Greek, and you can see it, I think, in your pew Bible in the, in the margin, gird up the loins of your mind. 
See, back in those days, everyone generally wore robes, men and women. And they were quite comfortable, especially in the, the Middle Eastern sun. The problem with them is if you needed to run or to be very active, they kind of got in the way. So if you knew that you needed to be able to respond quickly, you needed to run, you needed to be active, you would, you would gird up your loins. You would gather up that robe and you would tuck it into your belt so that it was above your legs so, or your knees so that it was no longer in your way. And he's saying, do that with your mind. Prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind to be productive. In other words, we must be prayerful about and eager to learn and understand what God has done. We need to exercise our intellect, contemplating the truth from God and its significance. If we're to set our hope on Christ rightly, then we need to prepare our minds. We need to be daily resolved to study and understand the things of Christ. And we also need to be sober. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. What does that mean? When you're sober, you're not drunk. Why does God call us not to be drunk? When you're drunk, you lose all self-control, right? You don't think carefully about what you're doing or why you're doing it. The Lord wants us to cultivate sobriety, to cultivate self-control. Learning to rein in our fits of passion, our jumping to conclusions, our rashness. He wants us to be intentional about what we think and what we say and what we do. Folks, these attitudes, being intellectually prepared and sober, are deeply countercultural. We live in an age that is frivolous and anti-intellectual. You've all seen it repeatedly. Most of us have found ourselves falling into it. A group is discussing ideas, claims about truth or morality, and someone pipes up, well, I feel that this is right, or I feel that it's that way, right? Maybe you've even done it yourself, because it's, it's that common way of speaking, but notice what you're doing. You're claiming that something is true or false, right or wrong, on the basis of feelings. But the Lord says, no, be self-controlled, Prepare your minds. Think. Know. Believe. Don't just follow your feelings. Follow what God has told you is true. Stand firm on that which He has demonstrated to be actual and factual and right. This is essential. If we are to set our hearts on the sure hope of God's grace then we must know what God has promised and we must trust what God has promised. We must know what God has commanded and we must do what God has commanded, not because we're going to earn anything by it, but because this is what pleases the Lord and because this is the way that we obtain a foretaste of that victory that Christ has obtained. If we're following after our momentary feelings and desires and pleasures, we can't set our hope fully on Christ. But if we're constantly in exercising our intellect to remember what Christ has done and how he has done it and what that means. If we're exercising the self-control that he gives us, not going about with the ways of the culture, but following after the ways of the Lord, then it will become increasingly possible, doable, to set our hope fully on the grace of God in Christ, which soon will be revealed. And then we need to go beyond cultivating hope 
Peter tells us that our hope must have legs. We must act. And so our second point that we see in verses 14 through 16, we're to embrace a high calling. And the heart of that high calling is holiness. What is holiness? As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What is that? Holiness is a twofold quality. On the one hand, it's a matter of purity, avoiding that which would defile us. Sin makes a man spiritually holy or spiritually dirty, and God wants us to be spiritually clean. So that means not doing what God commands us not to do, not doing what is rebellious against God. Sin is a, or holiness is a matter of purity, and it's also a matter of loyalty. To be holy is to be completely devoted. Not to the world, not to my job, not to my family, but to God, right? The holy person desires to serve God above all else. And that's what we're to embrace. We're to embrace in a way that it encompasses all of our conduct, holiness. Not just in the way that we worship or in the things that we learn or in the appearance we give in public. God wants us to cultivate holiness in all that we do. In all your conduct, he says in verse 15, you also be holy in all your conduct, in your worship, but also in your work, in the way you pursue profit, and also in the way that you kick back and relax, in the way you speak to your parents, or the way you raise up your children, in the way that you respond when someone offends you, and also in the way that you respond when someone accuses you of offense. God wants us in every situation, in all of our conduct, to cultivate holiness, avoiding that which would defile us with sin and striving in every circumstance, in every situation to serve God. This is where we stumble repeatedly as a church, not here, I'm talking as the Christian church. On the one hand, some so emphasize the grace of Christ, it's sounds weird to say we can overemphasize, but we can wrongly emphasize the grace of Christ, such as, so as to, to think that how we behave no longer matters. Because Jesus did everything, then it doesn't matter how we behave. That's wrong. Nor, on the other hand, is it okay to say, well, because of what Jesus did, we're reconciled to God, but now we must live in this particular way, or we cut ourselves off from God. That's not right either. Instead, we need to see that because Christ has obtained the victory for us, because Christ has reconciled us to God and made us children of God, because that gift is so immense and so amazing, we now need to live in a way that demonstrates we're His. We now need to live in a way that reveals the reality of our faith. We need to live in a way that shows the gratitude that such an amazing act deserves. And really, that's the heart of it, isn't it? We are the children of God. Isn't that amazing? Think on the sins that you've committed. The ugliness of the rebellion that you've embraced at times. Knowing that you were going to do that. Recognizing that you would embrace such defilement. God sent His Son to die for you anyway. God sent Jesus to do everything necessary to cause you to be adopted as His beloved children. Should that not fill us to overflowing 
with gratitude. Absolutely. And what should that gratitude look like? Well, he tells us, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Can you imagine if you had a friend, a relative, someone close to you, called you up and said, I am in terrible, terrible trouble. I've got a gambling problem. It just compels me. And I have used up all my savings, but, but that's not the bad part. The bad part is I borrowed some money off some really terrible people. And if I don't pay them back soon, it's going to be my end. And you give them what they need to get out of that hole. You give them what they need to be preserved. And they turn around and they spend it on another gambling proposition. Wouldn't that be horrible? How ungrateful, unthinkable. He says, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your ignorance was the ugliness, was the defilement, was the guilt that would have killed you. God sent His Son to rescue you from that. Don't dive back into it. Don't fill yourself with that filth again. Cover yourself with that defilement. Instead, recognize that He has adopted you as His children and live as such. How do children live? They seek, if they're good children, they seek to honor their parents. They look up to their father. They seek to reflect him. As he who called you is holy, as your father is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That means that we are called to pursue the holiness that reflects God. That doesn't come natural to us. What comes natural to us is to give ourselves over to the ways of the flesh, to the thing that feels right in the moment, to the thing that will allow us to fit in with a world that is devoted to sin. And God says you need to reject that. Setting your hope on Christ, remembering the victory He has given you, embracing that identity as children of God, Put aside from you all that God hates, even though it might seem to come natural. Even though it might promise happiness for the moment. Put it aside and prefer the holiness that delights God. Put it aside and prefer the holiness that reflects God to the world. And sometimes that's going to be hard. It is hard to simply forgive someone who has offended you rather than getting even. It is hard to reject that high-paying, high-profile job that you know would cause you to compromise in your morality. It is hard to refuse to go along with the person who is popular because of their blasphemous jokes. It's hard. But to embrace that which seems in the moment easy is to embrace that which shames our Father who saved us. It's to embrace that which would defile us anew and show that our loyalty is to ourselves or to the world rather than to our Heavenly Father. And this we cannot do. 
Instead, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, or for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But here's the thing. If you're doing it just because you think you have to, or just because you're worried about what the people in church or the people in your family will think, not only will you not do it, but your efforts to do it will be ugly and misplaced. That's where we get legalism. People who care only about how things look and not what motivates them, right? So when God says, be holy as I am holy, He's not saying, be holy or else I'll kick you out of heaven. He's not saying, do this or you'll never earn my favor. What he's really saying is, this is how I want you to show your thanks. And if we understand, if we truly have and are cultivating that hope in what Christ has done, that confidence in the victory he has won and soon will reveal, then we will be overflowing with gratitude. And really, that's the last thing we see here. What he's calling us to is a life that expresses deep gratitude. Notice how the last section of this text begins. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially. Hold there. Some translations, notably the NIV, try to smooth that a bit. They take it as a hypothetical question. And so they say, and since you call on him as father. But that's not what it says. It's a conditional phrase. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, then do this, then do that. It's a conditional phrase and it's a conditional phrase that ought to, at, ought to cause us to ask the question, do I call on him as father who judges impartially? Do I call on the maker of heaven and earth before whom all will stand? Do I call on him as my father? The apostle wants you to ask that question. God wants you to ask that question. He wants you to look deep inside and say, is this true? Do I regard him merely as my creator? Do I look on him merely as a cultural phenomenon? Or do I call on him as my father, the one who has saved me, the one who has provided for me, the one on whom my very life depends every single instant of every single day? Because if I do, that has some real consequences. If I do, that should cause me to overflow with gratitude. That should affect everything I do, everything I say, everything I think. If you have called upon Him, if you have sought His mercy, then you can be sure, He says, that He has ransomed you. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited from your forefathers. Kids, what's that mean to be ransomed? If, as sometimes happens, you need to borrow a few dollars and you say, you can keep my bicycle until I pay you back. The only way you get that bicycle back is by paying what you owe, right? Right? 
That's ransoming it back. We belonged to the devil. We belonged to sin. We were worthy of condemnation. And there was nothing we could pay. The price was way too high for us to be able to restore ourselves to God. To pay off the debt to His justice. Jesus did what we could never do. He paid everything that was necessary. He didn't do it with silver or gold. Silver or gold were nowhere near precious enough to pay the debt that we owed to God's justice because of our sin, because of our rebellion. No, it cost the the life. It cost the blood of Jesus Himself. The one man who was absolutely perfect. The one man who did everything that God commanded, who didn't do anything that God forbade. The one man who deserved heaven, he endured hell so that we could be freed from it. That's how we were ransomed. That's how we were delivered. That's how we became children of God. If that's true of you, if you trust in him, you were slaves, now you've become children. You've been restored from the empty ways that would have destroyed you into the the fullness of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. There is no greater gift. There is no greater blessing than this. Now how should you respond? Well, he tells you, fear the Lord. That's that's the testimony of God's word from the start to the finish. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 summarizes Solomon's entire venture of, of considering the meaning of life and the significance of what we do by saying this. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of of man. Revelation 15 talks about how the saints in heaven are praising the Lord and they say, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Fear God. That means on the one hand, tremble in recognition of God's greatness. He is the creator and the judge apart from whose will you could not survive an instant. He is the holy one whose judgment you of yourself cannot satisfy. Recognizing his greatness, we should fear him, but not in a terrified way. We fear him as a good child fears his father. Looking upon him with gratitude and with wonder. Trusting in him to save you as no one else can. Recognizing that all the good that you have and all the good you ever could have comes from his hand and his alone. Fear God, expressing your confidence in Him and your wonder that He loves you that much. And if you fear God in that way, then you will want to embrace holiness because you know it pleases Him. You will want to embrace holiness because it shows the world what He is like. And you will long daily to set your hope on the grace that is yours in Christ. The world demands that we fit in, that we get along with them, that we do the things that they do. Because if we don't, it convicts them. It reminds them that they have a choice, that they shouldn't be living in this way of rebellion. And so they will hate you, they will slander you, they will scorn you, they will mock you if you don't conform. God calls us to a better way. 
not conforming to the world, but in recognition of the greatness of His grace, filled with gratitude, setting our hearts completely on the grace of Christ that soon will be revealed and devoting ourselves to the holiness which delights God and reveals our fear of Him. This is the work to which He calls us daily throughout our lives. But it is in the way of this work, it is in, it is in the way of this path that we can have true life, true fulfillment, true joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is such a temptation for us to give in to the world's demand that we fit in. Deliver us from that temptation. Enable us to stand firm upon the hope of Christ, pursuing the holiness which delights you out of gratitude for all that you have done. When we are tempted to give in to the ways of the world, remind us of the price that you paid to deliver us. Renew in us a delight in your love and fill us with the power of your spirit that we might stand firm no matter what the world says of us, no matter how the world responds to us, that we might stand strong as your servants, as your children. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's stand together and sing number 451. Take time to be holy. We'll sing all the stanzas of 451.